Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 11 of the series The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Proving that sometimes you just can't win, after a frankly weak showing in 1925 where very few of the baby stars had done anything of note before getting on the list and went on to do very little of note afterwards, the Wampus were especially cautious with their 1926 selections and were duly criticized for picking actresses who were already too established. Every year the Wampus, a lively organization of press agents, issues a list of baby stars. It is supposed to consist of girls picked from obscurity by the keen eye of the publicity men, their candidates for fame and fortune. I'll pause there in this quote from Motion Picture Magazine's March 1926 issue to say that back in 1924, the Wampus clearly explained that they weren't looking for obscurity exactly. Experience was a factor they claimed to be considering, but the criticism that the 1925 list had too little experience and the 1926 list too much holds up. The magazine continued, The list this year was staggering. It included such girls as Mary Astor and Vera Reynolds, who have been on the screen for years and years. Next year they will probably name May Murray and Louise Dresser, or Josephine Crowell and Mary Carr. The ageist joke there is that May was a star in her late thirties, Louise was in her late forties, Mary in her early fifties, and Josephine was almost seventy. It is the end of a very original and charming idea, by to us appointing it out as hunks of propaganda among the studios, the Wampus Boys take away the point of the whole thing. Calm down, Motion Picture Magazine. Take a breath. For me, personally, 1926 is a terribly exciting group, even if some were already pretty well established when the list was announced. That year, because of the prestige of some of their selections, the Wampus even tried to drop the baby from the list's name. The Wampus stars of 1926 were Mary Astor, Mary Bryan, Joyce Compton, Dolores Costello, Joan Crawford, Marceline Day, Dolores Del Rio, Janet Gaynor, Sally Long, Edna Marion, Sally O'Neill, Vera Reynolds, and Faye Ray. I know you've heard of some of them. I mean, Edna Marion, such a megawatt star power. I'm being droll. No one has ever heard of Edna Marion before, but some of the others. Well, well, well. Dolores Costello it is fitting, reads Photoplay's September 1923 issue, that Dolores Costello, daughter of Maurice Costello, the first screen idol of filmdom, should seek her fame and fortune upon the silver sheet. 
If you are familiar with Dolores, you might immediately think of the Barrymore family. She was married to the legendary John Barrymore. She is Drew Barrymore's grandmother. But Dolores was born into the business herself. Her father was, as Photoplay noted, one of the earliest stars of the silent era, as well as being a prolific stage actor. Her mother, May, was also a successful performer. Dolores and her younger sister, Helen, began appearing in films in 1909's A Midsummer Night's Dream as fairies, filmed when Dolores, who was born in September 1903, was just shy of her sixth birthday. As a child, Dolores appeared in numerous shorts. She took a bit of a break, appearing on Broadway as a teenaged chorus dancer before deciding in 1923 that Hollywood, and on screen, was where she would like to be. It was slow going at first. Dolores got a few bit parts, but nothing really happened until 1925 when she was signed along with her sister to Warner Brothers. John Barrymore signed a contract with Warner Brothers around the same time. Over 20 years her senior, Jack as he was called, rose to fame as one of the most renowned stage actors of his era. Film stardom followed with successes like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1920, Sherlock Holmes, 1922, and Beau Brummel, 1924. After a gangbuster stint as Hamlet on stage, he signed a three-picture deal with Warner Brothers. His first picture with them was to be an adaptation of Moby Dick called The Sea Beast. Jack had the perfect 1926 wampus baby star in mind to play his leading lady. Mary Astor. Why, who did you think I was going to say? Mary had been Jack's co-star in 1924's Bo Brummel, and even though she was only 17 during filming, they had been having an intense affair. When it came time to do the Sea Beast at Warner's, Mary, who was under contract to First National, could not be loaned out for the film. Warner's cast another special young lady for the role. Priscilla Bonner! I'll stop doing this to you and tell you when Dolores comes into the picture. According to Barrymore family biographer Margot Peters, Jack saw Dolores once by chance at the studio before filming commenced and was immediately struck by her beauty. When he learned that she was a Warner's contract player, he insisted that she be given the part opposite him in The Sea Beast. Thus, Priscilla was released and Dolores got the part. Priscilla, by the way, was pissed off. At least she was able to sue Warner Brothers for breach of contract and get a hefty settlement. Mary Astor couldn't exactly sue for the loss of her boyfriend when Dolores and Jack began an affair. When the Wampus Baby Stars list was announced, Dolores had a slew of features in the works. There was the Sea Beast, yes, and it does appear that she got that role just because John Barrymore was into her. But she also had a breakout supporting role in Mannequin and Star Billing in The Bride of the Storm and The Little Irish Girl. All four films were released in the first months of 1926. She was on a hot streak. Pushing one performer so much so quickly can be tricky. Warner Brothers were clearly impressed by her. Jack Barrymore certainly was too. But audiences still had no idea who she was. Dolores just burst onto the scene, 
and while overall reaction was very positive, more publicity was going to be needed if she was going to be anything more than a flash in the pan. As 1926 progressed, she was everywhere. Portraits of her were featured in Photoplay, Screenland, and Motion Picture Magazine, who called her the best bet in Hollywood. References to her famous father and supportive mother were frequent. Pictureplay noted that Dolores and Helen were particularly fortunate that their mother knows the movie world inside and out because of her husband's career. A proud and happy family picture was being presented. Behind the scenes, the Costellos were in no small amount of turmoil, as Dolores's relationship with Jack Barrymore continued. May was charmed by Jack, and despite the fact that she and her daughter's lover were the same damn age, she encouraged the match. Maurice, on the other hand, was beside himself. His list of objections was a mile long, and it's hard to argue that he didn't make some excellent points. Jack was old enough to be Dolores's father. Jack was a drinker. Jack was a womanizer. Jack was still technically married. He was separated from his second wife, but still. The disagreement over Dolores and Jack's relationship was a contributing factor over Maurice and May's subsequent divorce. But the public, at this point, was none the wiser. Much of Dolores's publicity placed her on a pedestal high above any domestic mess. The only people qualified to write about Dolores Costello are poets, said Screenland. Photoplay called her the exquisite Dolores, and her type was not a flibberty-gibbet flapper, as so many of her peers were, but a pensive, empathetic, delicate performer. She was ethereal. She was sorrowful. She was not aloof, but she was as far away from common as one could get. All of this was extremely effective. Warner Brothers started calling her the belle of the box office, and by 1927 she was one of their most popular performers, despite picture play suggesting in their September issue that year that perhaps her rise was actually underwhelming. What price glory, they asked. I mused in that vein upon the aftermath of overnight success in the case of Dolores Costello, who seems to have taken a little drop, not back into oblivion, but into the annoying position of mediocre stardom. Mediocre stardom or not, it would be difficult to argue that she was not a star. The Dolores Costello fan club was established, and folks were writing poetry about her, the only people qualified, ha ha, and she starred once again with John Barrymore in When a Man Loves. Their relationship was not entirely on steady ground. Though Jack was deeply infatuated with Dolores, he was still negotiating his divorce, having liaisons with other women, and drinking so much. Dolores's mother, May, was the one who leaked rumors of their affair to the press. As much as she liked him, May was fed up with her daughter essentially being strung along, neither released from Jack's affections or respectfully married off. Luckily, rather than risking Dolores's reputation, the great actor being enamored with the goddess of the silent screen was a romantic idea that audiences could certainly get behind. They finally married in November 1928. Marriage didn't slow down Dolores' career, though the advent of sound was proving challenging. 
Earlier in 1928, Tenderloin was released. In this part talkie, now considered to be mostly lost, about 15 minutes total of dialogue was recorded. And when it played in the theater, well, people laughed at Dolores Costello. Dudless Traces Dolores, mocked Motion Picture Magazine. Now it's the talkies, Dolores Costello, pursued by the villain about a table, lisping, Murthy, Murthy, perhaps you have a sister of your own. A speech impediment should be nothing to be embarrassed about. But at a time when the transition to sound was coming like a freight train and stars seemed to be dropping off like flies on the so-called quality of their voices, to have this ethereal goddess of the screen come in hot with a lisp was bad news. Her saving grace truly was that she was with Warner Brothers. They were huge pioneers in the sound filmmaking revolution. Warner's was committed to sound, believing in it as the future of film and not just a fad. The technology they used, Vitaphone, was improving with every picture. Dolores was one of their classiest and most popular dramatic stars, and they weren't about to give up on her immediately just like they weren't about to give up on Vitaphone, growing pains or not. They put her in several partial talkies, and soon all talkies, and she was as busy as ever in 1929, having grown more comfortable speaking into the microphone and taking voice lessons. No, it wasn't really the talkies or her way of speaking that put an end, more or less, to Dolores' career. It was motherhood. She and Jack had two children— Dee Dee in 1930, and John Drew in 1932, before she divorced him in 1935. It had been a long time coming, with Jack's alcohol use becoming more and more problematic. When he was intoxicated, which seemed to be most of the time, he could be jealous, paranoid, possessive, hurtful, controlling, even violent. I don't think that it's at all wrong that the media was quite firmly on Dolores' side, referring to her regal demeanor to Jack's temper. She was commended in photoplay for enduring her ordeal with beauty and dignity. Only Motion Picture Magazine seemed willing to say that she may have her faults, too, but they couldn't come up with anything specific. Dolores returned to films between 1926 and 1943, never regaining her place on the pedestal, but she acquitted herself quite well. The Wampus nailed it with Dolores Costello. Sally Long When Sally Long was about 19, she ran off and married some guy she had only known for two weeks. This was in 1916, long before she ever graced the silent screen. They had two children, a boy and a girl. And then in 1919, coinciding with Sally joining the Ziegfeld Follies as a showgirl, the marriage was over. Unofficially, anyway. She kept the fact that she had two children a secret from the Follies, and Flo Ziegfeld even, somewhat ironically since she was already legally married, though he had no idea, took out a $100,000 insurance policy against her falling in love. He was fed up with his most popular girls leaving the company to elope. After a few years, Sally packed up and moved to Hollywood. Her very first credited appearance was in 1924's His Darker Self. Again, Jesus Christ, 
a racist comedy that I've mentioned a few episodes back. It did nothing for her career, and I really only mention it to one, keep everyone's rose-colored glasses about the past firmly off, and two, to point out that everybody ignored this piece of shit existed when the next year Sally actually began to get some roles. Her uncredited appearance as one of the bevy of models in Paul Burns' The Dressmaker of Paris alongside 1925 baby star Olive Borden was treated, in the press, as her first on-screen appearance. But of course, that's not a terribly exciting lead-up to being put on the Wampus Baby Stars list, and though she did have some projects in the works, the only thing that really accounts for her appearance is her general buzz. She was rumored to be Valentino's top pick for a role in the doomed vanity project The Hooded Falcon, though of course anybody could make a claim like that since it never got made. And she did sign a long-term contract with A.H. Sebastian of Belasco Productions. Let me tell you, I have no idea who that is. Belasco, from what little evidence I can uncover, appears to have been a Poverty Row production company. There were so many of those often short-lived. The main distributor for Belasco was Producers Distributing Company, which famed director Cecil B. DeMille owned part of. PDC would dissolve in 1927, but briefly, Sally did have this important connection, which would have added to the excitement around her name. I guess it was A.H. Sebastian who loaned her out for her five productions in 1926, and she was getting leading lady to bigger male star roles. It was also that year that the story of her past came to light. She probably would have done whatever she could to keep her name out of the papers, because being married with children wasn't really the done thing for a young starlet, but after finally filing for divorce from her husband, she had to get her daughter back. It's not clear exactly when the ex-husband absconded with the little girl, but according to the Chicago Tribune, the New York Welfare Society had to get involved in finding her. Once reunited, Sally, who had reportedly been introducing the children as her niece and nephew in public, really did have to come clean to everybody. Her domestic situation was in the newspaper. Okay, but the fan magazines weren't touching this one. At first, she wasn't noteworthy enough to talk about much, but in 1927 she was becoming a bit better known, and Pitcher Play, for one, decided that they would just lie. Well, not lie, but well, you'll see. Are men necessary? They headlined a piece in their May issue discussing all the single ladies living independently in filmdom, mentioning, Sally Long is one of the many bachelor girls of Hollywood who need no man to furnish her with a handsome home. In their Information, Please feature in the June edition, they also say, Sally Long is neither married nor engaged. She is about 19, I think. I mean, they were technically right. Not about her being 19, she was closer to 30. But divorced, but that equals neither married or engaged. One more little thing about her age. Some places have her birth year listed as 1901, but I found her on the 1900 census as a three-year-old. Sally herself was perpetuating the confusion over her age, like when she told the Chicago Tribune that she was 15 when she first got married. And censuses aren't always right, but they are unlikely to have invented a baby who wasn't born yet. 
Overall, the fan magazines weren't really talking about Sally much, though, and her pictures that year weren't paying the rent, let alone supporting her little ones. So Sally packed everybody up and returned to New York, where she had appeared on stage and still had a lot of influential and savvy friends. According to the Exhibitor Herald's November 30th, 1929 issue, when Sally returned to Hollywood after her two-year break, she was $175,000 richer because she made good on investments and her Eastern friends told her when to sell. I don't even know if this information is true, but what I do know is that the implication is a hell of a thing. Just a month before this, the stock market crashed, throwing the United States into the Great Depression and sending economic turmoil across the world. Lives were ruined, and Sally Long was somehow waltzing back into Hollywood, 175 grand richer. She popped up in two little nothing roles in 1930, but, you know, it's not like she needed to work. Sally eventually married her longtime partner, the composer Jean Schwartz, who she had been seeing since at least 1923, and they lived out of the public eye in relative luxury. The Wampus, needless to say, did not predict Sally Long's future with much accuracy. But all the mystery surrounding it or no, I don't think she minded too much about not being a star. Edna Marion Edna Marion, sometimes credited with her surname spelled ending in A-N rather than O-N, never a good sign, frankly, began her career in her late teens doing a bunch of century comedies in 1924 and 1925. Most of the two-reelers released through Universal were pretty inconsequential, but they did get her some further opportunities, as Picture Play reported in their January 1926 edition. The good old rubber stamp remark that comedies are the stepping stone to fame will have to be resurrected from the pigeonhole once again, and there is an especially good reason to celebrate on this occasion, because little Edna Marion, the century comedy girl, has won her first chance in a feature. It was that chance, or the promise of it, in The Still Alarm, 1926, that placed Edna on the Wampus list. But although she did make two other features that year, the rest of her time was taken up with more and more comedy shorts. Signing with the Christie Company only went to further cement her place as a comedy player. She was paired with Neil Burns to some success, just as his girlfriend, though, not really as a memorable character of her own. To be fair, I don't think Neil Burns crafted much of a memorable character of his own, either. Little remembered today, he was rather prolific at the time, but played generic, nice, if rather silly young men. And in turn, Edna would play the perfectly nice object of his affections. The Christie comedies weren't typically serialized, even when they had the same performers playing the same types of roles over and over again. So none of this led to a breakout character like some of our other Wampus baby stars of previous years had in two real comedies, like Alberta Vaughn, for example. Edna Marion to continue in her comedies, is a January 15, 1927 headline in the moving picture world. It's a bit of a one o'clock and all's well bit of non-news. <laughs> she moved over to Hal Roach's studio with a five-year contract, but, you know, as much of the same. Edna was paired with Charlie Chase for several sound shorts, but was released from her contract four years early in 1928. While she continued to trudge along, 
Edna never could gain any traction. "'What becomes of baby stars?' asked Movie Mirror in 1932. They gave Edna half a sentence. "'Edna Marion has been buried in shorts,' before moving on to talk about someone else. Buried in shorts is a painfully accurate way to describe Edna's career, which was all over by that year with an uncredited role in The Murders at the Rue Morgue. The Wampas, of course, had another misstep with Edna Marion. Vera Reynolds When Motion Picture Magazine lamented, as I mentioned in my intro, that the Wampas chose the two established for their 1926 list, Vera Reynolds was name-dropped. And it's true that she had been in the business for the better part of a decade, perhaps even longer, because uncredited childhood roles are impossible to verify. Vera was born in 1899, with her earliest confirmed credits starting in 1917 in a number of shorts for the LKO Company, to no particular notice for the next couple of years. Then the Christie Company, who was pretty much always looking for attractive young ladies, picked her up, and then Max Sennett and other less important studios over the next while, never getting much attention. Until Gloria Swanson needed a sister. They didn't look alike or anything, but Vera was deemed perfect for the role of Gloria's younger sister, who, as per moving picture world, is a young, pleasure-loving girl who is plunged into tragedy through her love of a good time in 1923's Prodigal Daughters. That got her a short-term contract with Paramount, who wasn't about to risk putting her in leading parts just yet, but they did give her supporting roles in films with other big stars soon, like Woman Proof, 1923, with Thomas Meehan, who is named the number one money-making star in that year's Quigley poll, Shadows of Paris with Pola Negri, and Icebound, which was directed by William DeMille. All of this got Vera in the eyeline of the legendary director, William's brother, Cecil B. DeMille. To be given a lead in a DeMille picture is like being tagged for a Harvard secret society, begins a motion picture magazine piece called How Cecil B. DeMille Picks Em in the December 1924 issue. How he picks em, according to the piece, is to put young women through a gauntlet of tests not too dissimilar to those terrible rage-baiting how-to-hire-the-right-candidate posts on LinkedIn. DeMille interviews them extensively while they sit on an uncomfortable chair. Next, he has them dressed up in various costumes, some barely held together with pins. This test, the magazine says, like the questioning, is mainly to see with what poise the girls will carry off a difficult situation. Vera got the lead in Feet of Clay and a contract with DeMille, so claims the article, because when she first entered the interview and was asked to remove her hat, she did so without sneaking her hands up to fix her hair. Feet of Clay, released in the autumn of 1924, is now lost, but it sounds like so much fun. Rod the Rock played a hunky surfer who gets his foot bitten off by a shark. Unable to do his job, which is beach, his beautiful wife, played by our girl Vera, 
has to get work as a model. Meanwhile, the wife of the surgeon who operated on Rod's foot tries to seduce him and then she dies. Reviews were mixed to bad, with several theater owners claiming in the motion picture world that audiences walked out. But it was a big enough picture that showcased Vera very well. So although I don't completely agree with the assertion from Motion Picture Magazine that Vera would have qualified for the Wampus Baby Stars list considerably earlier than she was, certainly 1925 on the heels, pardon the pun, of Feet of Clay and all her work in 1924 would have made a lot of sense. So was she a star when she landed on the list? Not quite. DeMille was still calling her a feature player in his company in the lead-up to her inclusion, although she was working a lot and in big roles, until 1926 when he started singing her praises as one of his top stars, almost immediately verifying the Wampus' prediction. DeMille named her, along with Jetta Gould and Priscilla Dean in the moving picture world, as one of the newest to reach the upper echelons. In another issue, there was a full-page spread, Cecil B. DeMille and his stars. Cecil in the middle, his portrait in an oval frame. Circular portraits of his stars surround him, Vera at the top right. It looks like something out of an old family album, which fits right in with his paternalistic role. So much of her publicity was really publicity for Cecil B. DeMille, and it's hard to get a good handle on who he wanted her to be, or be seen as anyway, beyond his star. There's a full-page, partially in-color promotion for her in 1927 in the Exhibitor's Herald that says, The Ideal Modern American Girl. Vera is pictured looking very... stern. The page mentions that she will be soon appearing in Walking Back. But Vera never appeared in that film. She was also announced in Motion Picture News as part of the cast of DeMille's next epic, The King of Kings, but did not appear. In fact, quite suddenly she was having a marked decrease in her output, with only three films released in 1927. Her personal life was maybe a factor. In August that year, she made the papers when she either did consume poison or nearly consumed it and fainted from the shock of her mistake, and it was either purposeful or a complete accident. So while she recovered just fine and denied having anything but a lust for life, the sudden idea that she might be a troubled soul was introduced. 1928 was no better, but no one could blame a common household poison then. In 1927, DeMille's distribution side, Producers Distributing Corporation, merged with Pathé. There were lots of arguments, money issues, turmoil. The following year brought more mergers and splits, and anyway, DeMille hated all of it. So when the opportunity arose to walk away and join MGM, he did so, leaving behind his roster of stars. Picture Play called them the little orphans of the DeMille Company. Vera was among them, completely adrift without DeMille. She kept on working until 1932, but to no acclaim. She got a bit of attention in the fan magazines when the story of her marriage to Robert Ellis was revealed in 1929, some three years after their wedding, which had to be kept secret, as Vera had a no-marriage clause in her DeMille contract. Then again in 1938, 
it was discovered that they hadn't actually legally married at all. Vera contended that she didn't know until nine years of living together that the marriage wasn't official, as there was a ceremony, so she sued Robert for $150,000 over breach of promise. Then they actually got married in 1938, and though they eventually divorced, the breach of promise suit was dropped. Anyway, all of this feels like a lesson in not owing your boss too much loyalty. Presumably, it would have been harder to have an unofficial wedding if Vera hadn't had to hide that she was getting married at all. And if she had been with a bigger studio, rather than functionally tied to just one guy, then she wouldn't have been quite so abandoned when he took his ball and went home. The Wampus was right. Vera Reynolds was a star. A DeMille star. Which came with its own costs. Mary Bryan Some reports at the time placed Mary Bryan on the Wampus Baby Stars list of 1925. Considering that getting the year a baby star appeared all mixed up feels very fundamentally like something I would do, I was very concerned. Had I beefed the format of my own podcast? But, I reminded myself, the Wampus Boys did appoint alternates sometime. I'm not quite sure why, it's not like the baby stars had all that much to do. So it seems likely that Mary Bryan's appearance in some publications is because she was a pinch hitter in 1925, as she definitely did get her true honors the following year in 1926. If she had appeared on the 1925 list, it would have been on the strength of just one credited role, Wendy and Peter Pan. Mary was 18 at the time of the film's release in late 1924, though they shaved off a couple of years to claim that their perfect Wendy was just 16. She got the role, reportedly, after losing a beauty contest, but impressing her soon-to-be Peter Pan co-star, Esther Ralston. Ralston played Mrs. Darling, even though she was only like four years older than Mary. The two became best friends, and later on Mary was even Esther's maid of honor. But long before that, Esther pulled some strings and got Mary, who was born Louise Birdie Dantzler, an audition, and thus kicked off, after a name change, Mary's career. Variety called her performance in Peter Pan, sweet, demure, and with a sort of self-effacing manner, which wins the hearts of those in the front. Screenland said she was wonderful, a good start and it was to continue. She was signed by Paramount, who quickly put her to work. 1925 was a great first full year for Mary, as she appeared in increasingly vital roles in four features. Screenland put her on their August cover, looking almost comically sweet, with a big old hat on and a bouquet of flowers. She was almost a no-brainer for the Wampus list, and kept going from strength to strength in 1926. An agreeable compromise between the too flamboyant flapper, Motion Picture Magazine called her, and the old-fashioned heroine. Mary wasn't out of touch, but she wasn't inaccessible either. Photoplay explained in their September 1926 issue, Every young man's idea of the right girl, and every old man's memory of his first sweetheart, the girl the hero always marries, 
lately loved by William Haynes in Brown of Harvard. Now Mary Bryan is the love interest in Beau Jest. She wasn't actually the primary love interest in Beau Jest, but it was a big movie. Photoplay later named it the best picture of the year, so that's a nice boost. Mary went on to appear in a wide variety of genres, comedies, romances, historical dramas, westerns, but her type was pretty consistent. The pure-hearted heroine. Fun, for sure, not stuffy or uptight, but warm, loving, and innocent. Photoplay said in their 1927 issue that Mary's appearance in a film makes it worthwhile to the boyfriend, as in guys really like her. Frequent pairings with Richard Dix proved popular. Um, you know how sometimes Richard gets shortened to Dick? Motion Picture Magazine did that to Richard Dix when telling a story about how he and Mary did a radio appearance to promote one of their films together. They didn't directly call him Dick Dix, but it was inferred. That's not important to Mary's story or anything, but I'm very immature. All this while, she wasn't a star, but Mary was growing and growing as a known and loved performer. By 1928, though, as we've discussed before, wild women were on the up in films, not girls next door. Also, Mary was now 22, though no one would admit it, and eager to take on more sophisticated roles. She bobbed her hair, combed out the curls, started showing up more and more on the fashion sections of fan magazines. But those same magazines resisted the change. With Photoplay, for example, while conceding that she was growing up, still said that she had a round face like a little dumpling and insisted that naughty comedies weren't for her. And Paramount seemed hesitant to put Mary in daring roles too, despite the trends. So they cast her, for example, in the drama Forgotten Faces, 1928, that has all kinds of criminality and affairs and murder. But Mary just played the innocent ingenue. Photoplay had a feature in the April issue that year called Roles They'll Never Play. In it, they say things like, William Powell can't play a dork. Not those words exactly. <laughs> Louise Brooks can't play an angel, that sort of thing, no matter how much they might want to. Under Mary's picture, they say, The girl who would alluring go, bored with being the sweet influence on the screen hero's life, Mary Bryan hopes to slink around in velvet and earrings, but her producers refused. They know that the movie bad die young. So they throttled Mary a bit, kept her typecast as the good girl, but she was popular with fans nonetheless and very busy. The talkies didn't slow her down either, her most important film of 1929 being The Virginian with Gary Cooper, where she played a and this must have been a big stretch, a wholesome schoolmarm. She's the sweetest girl in Hollywood, declared Screenland in the July edition. Sugar-coated ladies are Hollywood's staple product, but the usual brand of studio sweetness melts too quickly when exposed to a bit of cloudy weather. But not Mary, they say. Now I could argue that she genuinely hadn't had any cloudy weather to melt her sweetness. No big flops, no scandals, no ill-treatment in the press. There wasn't even a risky move taken to star her all alone in a movie. 
The closest thing to clouds that Mary had at this point professionally is that she had expressed an interest in cooler parts and been gently rebuffed. But Screenland's position was that she never wavered in her sweetness because she was strong. Too strong to get into hysterics, temper tantrums, or grumbling. And that she had learned to be strong, which according to them means never complaining ever, because she only played with boys growing up. Oh, that's why Mary's so sweet, because she's not like other girls. Oh, brother. I'm rolling my eyes at all of this, but the sheer amount of work she was getting, over 20 films between 1928 and 1930, and her popularity with fans, proved that Paramount and the audiences wanted somebody to believably be the good girl, even as they came into that notoriously risque pre-code era. Not everybody could be a baddie, you know? This isn't to say that they wanted to keep Mary totally infantilized. Although they were still trying to say that she was 19 in 1930, she'd been 19 for years by that point. But a girl so sweet and lovely and so popular with the menfolk in the audiences was bound to get attention in real life, too. The new movie magazine quoted Mary as giving this advice for dating. If you let a man lead the conversation, he's pretty likely to call again. Is it too soon to say, oh, brother, again? Every time she tried to step outside of her sweetheart persona, like when she did a photo shoot trying to look vampy in a Betty Boop-esque wig, the fan magazines reacted swiftly and emphatically. Why do you think we prefer caviar when you are such a perfect peaches and cream? lamented Picture Play. Whoa! Who's this dangerous child now menacing the peace of mind of the great motion picture public? asked Photoplay, clearly terrified. So she continued along her girl-next-door path, before Paramount, finally coming to terms with the changing tastes, released her from her contract in the spring of 1931. Mary, for six years a good draw, suddenly found herself, like a number of others, one of that vast horde of disappearing ingenues for which you, you, and you have no use, remarked Photoplay. She didn't actually disappear, but went freelance, trying once again to put herself forward for less sugary roles to middling results. She was still working, though the years ebbed and flowed as far as her output. Her name, though, was consistently in the fan magazines. Aside from more wigs, one of her other methods of getting attention was to let rumors run rampant about her love life. George O'Brien, Buddy Rogers, Rudy Valley, Jackie Oakey, Jean Raymond, Dick Powell, she was constantly reported as being engaged and constantly denying it, but in a I'll-never-tell sort of way. And people got over it quick. If it's a publicity stunt, Mary, it's getting to be very, very tiresome. Stop working your press agent overtime and take a few acting lessons instead, wrote a fan in Picture Play magazine in September 1934. After all, I think a career is more important than merely being photographed with one young man after another. Sooner or later, you might run out of boyfriends, and then where will you be? It's a testament to the power of her innocent, good girl persona, 
that her well-publicized romances never led to Mary being slut-shamed. Rather than take the position that she was being a man-eater or something, people far more often took the position that they didn't even believe the romances were real. If I violated every decency of every morality code in the country, no one would believe it, Motion Picture Magazine quoted Mary as saying in a feature called Prisoners of Their Reputations in their August 1934 issue. Mary continued to work throughout the 1930s, usually as a dependable, wholesome leading lady, never ascending to real stardom, sorry Wampus, still never getting the roles that she wanted, lamenting to Hollywood Magazine even in 1938 that, I'm afraid you just can't grow up in Hollywood. I enjoy playing girlish parts, but I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that one day soon comes when I can play a dominant, dramatic part and show them that Wendy has grown up. She was 32 years old. Peter Pan was 14 years before. But like Pan himself, Mary Bryan simply couldn't grow up. In the Prisoners of Their Reputations feature, motion picture quoted Rudolf Valentino, who incidentally passed away in 1926, as once saying, I am a prisoner. I am a prisoner of a fixed idea. The fixed idea was that Mary Bryan was a sweet child, that Edna Marion was only a comedy shorts player, that Vera Reynolds was a DeMille invention, that Dolores Costello was a goddess above reproach. I hope you've enjoyed our first foyer into 1926. If you felt so benevolent as to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating wherever you like to listen, I'd be ever so grateful. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.